This morning, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Roe protected the constitutional right to an abortion for nearly 50 years. What this means to women is such an insult. It's a slap in the face to women. I think, I think it's a miracle. I'm so thrilled. The ruling comes more than a month after the stunning leak of a draft opinion by Justice Samuel Alito. In the final opinion today, Alito writes Roe and the 1992 case that reaffirmed abortion rights were both wrong. Now, at least 20 states are set to prohibit or extremely limit access to abortion. Within 30 days, the state of Texas will no longer allow any abortion whatsoever unless it's an emergency for the life of a woman. And that is officially it. The outcome was expected. But still, when the ruling was posted, the country erupted. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the L.A. Times. It's Friday, June 24th, 2022. Today, we revisit five episodes from our series on the future of abortion. Over the past few months, The Times has been looking at the issue of abortion from a number of perspectives. We traveled to a clinic in Boulder, Colorado, where Dr. Warren Hearn has been providing abortions since Lyndon Johnson was president. I have a million things to do. I have a lot of work to do here. I love my work. I love seeing patients. LA Times reporter and Houston bureau chief Molly Hennessy Fisk asked Dr. Hearn about the first abortion he ever did. Well, it's interesting because the way he described it to me, he said it was difficult for the patient, but it was also difficult for him because it was such an unknown, you know, doing this for the first time and that he was nervous. I remember the first abortion I did was on a 17-year-old young woman who wanted to be an anesthesiologist. And I was terrified, and so was she. At the end, she cried and so did I, because I was happy that I hadn't hurt her. This was something that was really important to her in terms of pursuing her, her life. Hearn found his calling, ensuring women had access to legal abortions. It's a mission he believes is worth dying for. He has friends who have, including Wichita doctor George Tiller. Dr. Tiller actually was shot a couple of times. He was shot in both arms first, and he survived that. And then he was fatally shot later in the head by an anti-abortion extremist, Scott Roeder, while Dr. Tiller was ushering at his um, church service. Witnesses said that he had been to the church several times. He was sitting in the sanctuary when the services started, got up a few minutes later, shot the doctor in the head with one shot without saying a word, and then threatened a couple of ushers on the way out. His wife was watching from the choir and saw it happen. Afterwards, she called Dr. Hearn and told him, Warren, he's gone. What? He's gone. They shot him in the church lobby. I was just devastated. Yeah, she called me. Dr. Tiller had been a good friend. They'd gone on ski trips together. He'd been to family gatherings with him, and they had been really allies. And there's very few doctors from that era who are left. Because Dr. Hearn's work is at the center of one of the most contentious debates in America, it means that just showing up to his clinic every day is a risk. He's faced this sort of constant barrage of threats. I want to make sure I have your name. It's Kevin Williams. There's small things like 
protesters staking out the clinic. And why is it important to you to be out here, Kevin? Uh, you have about a week. <laughs> they come every Tuesday morning because they know that that's new patient intake day. And so when he drives his car in, he has to take strategic routes and park in a strategic place. And he thinks about things like snipers and whether they might have a sight line on him as he walks into the clinic. I went to great expense to fix a parking place here so that I didn't have to walk across the driveway and get shot by somebody, a sniper, who's in the parking garage. But there have also been some pretty serious stalkers over the years, people he had to get protective orders against, people who made death threats against him or put him on hit lists. How many doctors have to worry about that kind of stuff? Hit lists of doctors, some of whom actually did get killed. The basic lesson is that the anti-abortion people will accept any level of violence, any level of violence to impose their views, and they will stop at nothing. Next, we went to Holland, Michigan to meet Christy Berghoff. She's a church worship coordinator whose views on abortion have changed over time. Would you stand if you're able and join us for our opening song, I Want Jesus to Walk With Me. One of the most frustrating things about the issue is there isn't really a place for people who don't fit all the way on one side or all the way on the other side. And I find myself very much caught in between. I want Jesus to walk with me. By LA Times colleague, national reporter Javed Kalim, talked to Christy about the evangelical church that she grew up in and its hardline stance on abortion. The story of, of Christy Burkhoff is really a pretty standard story of somebody who grew up in Western Michigan and Holland. And so Christy grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, which is a denomination that settled it and developed Holland. They came from the Netherlands. That's why it's called Holland. Everything is Dutch around there. The tradition in the Christian Reformed Church is typically that, you know, abortion is, is just not an option, period. We considered this murder. So if a woman had an abortion, we called her a murderer. Doctors who did abortions, they're murderers. They have no respect for life. There really wasn't room for exception. There wasn't room for nuance or any consideration of the context. So that gives you a sense of how strict the line is on abortion in the church. So it was, it was pretty brutal. She describes Holland as a place of rules and uniformity. People were very friendly here to each other, maybe a little suspicious of people who didn't look like us, people who didn't think like us, people who didn't believe like us or worship like us. If you're not in with what others believe, you're out, you know, you're an outcast. And she was in. But then Christy moved to Washington, D.C., where she went to work for a Republican congressman at the time, and her views on abortion shifted. 
It was leaving Holland, Michigan that changed her mind and going to D.C. She went there to be a you know, pro-life activist, essentially. What happened when she was there was D.C. is politically, it's mixed. Racially, it's diverse. Uh, people from all over the, the country and world and all kinds of Christians there, not just conservative evangelicals or Christian Reformed church people. Something else happened to Christy as well, which is she began to see how, in her view, abortion was not just a moral or religious issue. She began to see it as a political wedge in a way. The first time I really started thinking, I'm on to something here, that we're not doing what we're saying we're doing, that we're misleading people for political purposes. When I started hearing kind of joking conversation between members of Congress who were saying like, you know, well, we have to keep the abortion issue alive because we got to keep the evangelical vote. The evangelicals need to be angry about this. That's how they're going to vote for us. So hearing that kind of rhetoric and that kind of dialogue just angered me to the core. It just became very apparent that the abortion issue was the carrot that they needed to dangle in front of the evangelical voter to keep them following them. So she kind of began to question, is abortion the end-all be-all issue? Should there be more? And that's when I kind of started just pulling away and feeling uncomfortable with working for a Republican. More after the break. In the third episode from our series on the future of abortion, Molly Hennessy Fisk took listeners to the only abortion clinic in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. It's the only clinic for hundreds of miles along the border at this point because over the years, restrictions in Texas have forced a lot of clinics to close. So we're at Whole Woman's Health Clinic in McAllen, Texas. They've got 46 consults scheduled today. It's the afternoon and two got turned away because they didn't qualify under the state's new abortion law, SB 8. So it's about 10 miles north of the border with Mexico, and it serves a, the Rio Grande Valley region primarily, which is about 1.3 million people. Most of them, about 90%, are Latino, like Claire. They have about seven more patients um, before the end of today. We've been here since 8 a.m., and they're closing around 5. It's pretty representative of the people who are getting abortions nationally. Most of the women, 75% of them getting abortions are low income, and 60% of them are people of color, Black or Latino. Molly talked to a doctor from the clinic in McAllen, a woman named Blair Cushing. She told us about the challenges low-income women often face in getting access to abortion. Just getting out of the Rio Grande Valley to go somewhere else usually takes a full day of travel is just like an entirely different beast because you're not talking about a single day trip where I drive three hours across the border to Oklahoma 
or can even get on a direct flight somewhere where there's even an option for me to come home again the same day. There's a lot of other barriers that she said when she goes back to California and talks to people about it, they just really don't understand how insurmountable it can be. I think of some of the critique, I guess, I've heard from people in California of like, well, why aren't people in Texas fighting back? And I'm like, well, why don't they do this? Or why don't they do that? And people here, I mean, in California, can't understand that this is a situation where the wage, the minimum wage is less than half of what the minimum wage is in California. Studies show that most women seeking abortions already have at least one child. It's difficult, like some of the women I talked to said, to get time off from work. Nobody's guaranteed benefits. Like, they aren't given sick time. They aren't given paid time off that's guaranteed by law. To ask for help from family who are going to be wondering where they're going, what they're doing. And so even getting an abortion fund or some other group to help them with the cost of the procedure and travel doesn't counteract all that other stuff that they face. Your life circumstances aren't just eliminated because somebody's helping to give money for a plane ticket or to pay for the abortion itself, you know. Molly also gave us a look inside a pregnancy resource center in Dallas. So Birth Choice is one of these pregnancy centers. It actually opened in 2009. So I'm Rhonda K. Moreland, and I'm the chairman of the board. And Aaron, Aaron Fowler, our executive director. Rhonda chairs the board of it. She has been involved since 2009, since the founding of it. I want you to get the full experience of what it's like for somebody just to completely walk up. Aaron is the executive director, so he runs the day-to-day operations, working with their staff. They have about nine staff members, two of whom are registered nurses. So this is kind of where their journey begins with the opportunity that they have here for counseling or free services of any kind. They serve about a 1,000 people a year, and many of the people that they see are in crisis. They're overwhelmed. They feel like they don't have a lot of choices either because they have financial limitations. They have housing issues. They might be coming out of a domestic violence situation. Some are very young youths, like 12, 14 years old. The number one thing that clients come here is to find out if they're pregnant. And so we have pregnancy tests that, that are approved by the nurses. Their services are free. They do offer pregnancy testing, ultrasounds, counseling. This is a place where we stage a lot of the supplies. The baby boutique, it says. Oh, my gosh. There's a lot of stuff in here. (laughs) And they work with other members of what they call the pregnancy help movement. So places that handle adoption, maternity homes that provide places for women to stay when they're pregnant and even afterwards. Molly told us a story of one woman that we called Elle and her experience at Birth Choice. So overall, it was positive. They called me back there, and it was like a relief. It was like my turn. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was my turn. She went in. She felt like she was treated with respect. She went through a counseling session where a staffer tried to figure out what she wanted, what she needed in order to not have an abortion. 
And the main thing was housing, being able to reunite with her sons, and also some sort of a job to support herself independently. She comes back in and she was like, um, I found you a place, it's perfect. But and so they connected her with Blue Haven Ranch, which is a maternity home that provided her with an apartment. And she was like, they, they accept kids. And now I just started crying. Because at that moment, I was like, I can get my sons, you know, because I pretty much just vanished. She was able to reunite with her older sons. They're now attending school there. And the maternity ranch did a bunch of other things for her, like threw her a baby shower, took her to get a 3D ultrasound of her baby, which it turns out is a boy. So do you have a name picked out? I do. Um, his name's going to be Kaysen. How do I spell that? K? C. Oh. She's allowed to stay there rent-free, and they also provided furniture while she's pregnant and then, like, up to 18 months afterwards. Finally, last week we sat down with my LA Times colleague David Savage. He's been covering the Supreme Court since 1986. He told us the story of how Justice Harry Blackman, the man who wrote the majority opinion in Roe v. Wade, landed on 28 weeks for the legal cutoff for an abortion. Well, that's an interesting story. It was a small story at the time. It's become a very big story over the years. Blackman spent a lot of time writing this big draft on his own. He sent it around, and his, like, final version in November of 1972, he said, you'll notice the cutoff point is the first trimester. He said, that seems reasonable. I know it's arbitrary, maybe quickening, maybe viability, Several justices said, that's fine with me. Two of them sent around memos from their clerks saying, oh, you really ought to, some women don't even grapple with this until later. Viability, like 28 weeks, would make more sense. And so Blackman said, okay, I'll change it. Made it 28 weeks. I'd say for the better part of the last 20 years, 25 years, all the legal fights have been over late-term abortions. And so in a sort of casual way, the court made a very big decision without really spending a lot of time thinking about it that turned out to cause a lot of consequence because the public was with the court on the early abortions, solid majority, but not later abortions. David explained how abortion became so partisan over the years. It started to change in the 70s, and actually fairly, it changed over time. Good evening. I'm Edwin Newman, moderator of this first debate of the 1976 campaign between Gerald R. Ford of Michigan, Republican candidate for president, and Jimmy Carter of Georgia, Democratic candidate for president. For example, in the 1976 election, Jimmy Carter was an opponent of abortion, and Gerald Ford, he and his wife were pro-choice people. Tonight's debate focuses on domestic issues and economic policy. So as late as 1976, the Republican presidential candidate was more a supporter of the right to abortion than the Democrat. It started to change over time, and the big change came in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan said he was a pro-life person. The Republican platform said we would stand up for the rights of the unborn. With regard to the freedom of the individual for choice with regard to abortion, there's one individual who's not being considered at all. That's the one who's being aborted. 
when Reagan became elected, it became the sort of official Republican mantra that we're going to appoint justices who will overturn Roe versus Wade. The litmus test that's in the Republican platform says no more than the judges to be appointed should have a respect for innocent life. Now, I don't think that's a bad idea. And over time, both parties separated. All the Catholic Democrats who were opposed to abortion sort of moved out of the Democratic Party, and the Republicans became the essentially 100% pro-life party. And the Democrats became the women's rights pro-choice party. The repercussions of overturning Roe versus Wade will likely be big and long-lasting. For 50 years, women have had the constitutional right to end their pregnancies. What happens now that they don't? We'll be covering this on The Times in the weeks, months, and probably years ahead. That's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. I hope you enjoyed these excerpts from the Future of Abortion series, and make sure to check out the full episodes. You can listen by going to the links in the show notes of this episode, or you can find and listen to the whole abortion series in one convenient place by going to Apple Podcasts on your phone and signing up for a subscription. Kasha Brasalian was a hef on this episode, and Mario Diaz mixed and mastered it. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, David Toledo, and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistant is Madeline Amato. Our intern is Surya Hendry. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eppin. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back next week with all the news in this madre. Gracias. <laughs>